Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hello and namaste. I'm Devina Gupta. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Coming up for you on the show today, we talk about the crypto wild, wild west. Why is the largest crypto exchange, Binance, worried now? Also, how is Russia trying to overcome Western cabs on its crude oil exports? And Qatar might be the host of the World Cup, but the football carnival has proved to be a winner for Dubai's tourism industry. As football's greatest event, the World Cup draws to close this weekend in Qatar. Why is Dubai a big winner? In it, we tell you all. But first, we start with crypto. After the fall of the popular crypto exchange FTX, confidence crisis has been brewing not only for investors and crypto founders, but also with the auditing firms. One of the most popular auditing firm for crypto exchanges, the Mazars Group, has now indicated it's had enough and is now pausing work on all its crypto clients, including the largest crypto exchange, Binance. Now, the group used to come out with partial audit reports called proof of reserve reports which basically worked as quick guidelines for keen investors. It didn't outline any liabilities for the crypto exchanges, but gave an idea of what their assets are like. And the group's spokesperson now has said that they are suspending this work. In an email sent by this French firm, it said that it's doing so because of indications that markets haven't been reassured by these reports it has published so far. It also expressed concern about intense media scrutiny. So how does it all impact the crypto street? Mike Alfred is on board of directors at Iris Energy, which is the Nasdaq-listed crypto miners, an advisor to venture capitalists, and he has some answers. I think they're stopping their audit of the centralized exchanges, uh, KuCoin, Crypto.com, and Binance, uh, which in my view is somewhat predictable because these are companies that all have significant potential issues. Um, it's not clear that any of them have proper internal controls proper corporate governance. Um, you don't even know where Binance actually is because they have no domicile. Um, and they've never done audited financials previously. And so Mazar was not actually doing a full audit of these firms. It was actually just a sort of par- partial proof of reserves of a portion of some of their assets with no liabilities included. Um, and I think they just realized that the liability here for them as a firm was too big. They didn't want to become the next Arthur Anderson and essentially be put out of business for putting their stamp of approval on firms that may have committed fraud. So was Mazar overreaching in trying to audit crypto clients, which essentially are trading in speculative assets, and uh, there is no regulation right now in terms of central regulation? I mean, I think Mazar and Amarino and some of the other audit firms that have tried to work with these firms find that there are typically a lot of issues in dealing with crypto firms broadly, because it's hard to prove that you actually own all of the assets that you say you own, right? It turns out that's quite difficult and quite tricky um, because you don't necessarily want to be moving billions and billions of dollars of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other assets around on chain. Um, And so it could take six or nine months, but my argument 
would be that a firm of the size of Binance, where it has sort of $50 billion or more of customer assets on deposit there, they should be willing to do the work, even if it takes nine months. And they just haven't been willing to do it except when they're challenged, right? And so it's interesting that these firms that have a culture of no accountability and no transparency, suddenly all of a sudden are interested in doing an audit uh, after somebody like FTX goes down and regulatory authorities Hmm. and law enforcement authorities broadly are sort of on their heels. How does this impact the confidence crisis that we're seeing right now in uh, the cryptocurrencies? In just last two weeks, according to CryptoQuant, $500 million of stable coins and $2 billion worth of Bitcoin and Ether have been sold by the investors. Yeah, look, there's a there's a massive loss of trust that's happened. Um, but it wasn't just FTX. It was also Celsius, BlockFi, Three Arrows Capital, Terra Luna. You go down the list, uh, Voyager, right? These companies and, and protocols blew up and costed consumers billions and billions of dollars of, of savings. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a quick turnaround in terms of, of finding uh, new sources of trust because um, it's clear, at least if you're paying attention, that there are still fraudulent actors active in the market. There are still bad actors uh, who control a significant percentage of the global crypto market who have yet to been be uh, held to account. So I think it, it, it may take years to fully recover from this. Well, that was Mike Alfred from the U.S. talking to us. But uh, looking at Mazar's exit from auditing crypto exchanges, this has fueled concerns for solvency of the popular crypto exchange from Binance because they used to audit Binance. The exchange has said today that it has been hit by roughly $6 billion in net withdrawals between Monday and Wednesday from uh, the crypto exchange firm Binance. Now, there was a clear impact also on cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin also dipped under $17,000 mark. Chris Lowe, a Wall Street market analyst based in New York, has been expecting it. Crypto's down, not surprisingly, across the board. That's the place to start. Um, Bitcoin down more than 3%, Ethereum almost 6%. And uh, most of the damage in in all of the coins is somewhere in that range. This is a big story that comes on the heels of a couple of weeks of big stories for crypto, primarily the FTX story, which everyone's watching very closely. But the common thread seems to be a growing sense that the lack of regulatory oversight led to something of a cowboy culture with, uh, let's say, casual approach to accounting that uh, has not only investors nervous, but as we saw today, uh, the, the auditors are starting to realize it's probably a good idea to get some distance because uh, an auditor can get into quite a bit of trouble if they get sucked Mm. into um, a a situation like FTX, where there very likely was fraud. I like the crypto cowboy culture analogy, Chris. I think uh, that's that's the way of putting it. But even in this volatile market, Hong Kong is looking to turn the faith of investors. It has launched its first two exchange-traded funds for crypto today. So essentially, investors can now access cryptocurrency futures that are traded on Chicago. Mercantile Exchange. How do you see this development? I think this market has a future, but the future depends on uh, investors having confidence. And that confidence now 
is going to have to come from the same strict regulatory oversight that we have in other aspects of finance. I think it's coming, uh, but it's going to take a while to get everything in place. But what are you advising crypto investors, especially when it comes to uh, ETFs, uh, to the lines of what the Hong Kong exchange has opened right now? Because again, it's more speculative and there is a fundamental risk. Absolutely, there is. And uh, the, the first rule is to do your homework, not just about the cryptocurrency you're investing in, but also the exchange you're trading on, uh, the, the place where your money ultimately is parked. Uh, there, there is an awful lot of shady business going on in that world. But there are, you know, uh, more established players who are in it as well. It is possible to invest safely, but I, I think you need to do it with eyes wide open. Also, the Wall Street has closed in the red after the Fed rate hike and warning that it would continue. And this also had impact on the European and the Asian markets today. But from all the action in the markets and the crypto world to the action on the football ground, the big World Cup final is coming up this Sunday in Qatar, where Argentina will be facing the defending FIFA champions, France. And the competition has not only proved to be a tourism boom for host Qatar, but Dubai has emerged as a big winner as well. The BBC's Middle East business correspondent Samir Hashmi tells us why from Dubai. Ecstatic celebrations after Argentina sealed their spot in the World Cup final. Qatar might be the host of the World Cup, but the football carnival has proved to be a winner for Dubai's tourism industry. Across the city, fan zones like this have been packed over the last few weeks. Due to an acute shortage of hotel rooms in Doha, tens of thousands of fans like Brad opted to stay in the UAE and travel to Qatar to watch the matches. I chose Dubai over Qatar purely because I have friends, I know the area, I like the beaches, I like the sun, nothing wrong with Qatar. Um, it was hard trying to find hotels in Qatar where Dubai has a lot to offer and a lot cheaper rates. The organisers have been operating 120 shuttle flights between Dubai and Doha, transporting 20,000 fans every day during the tournament. A huge turnout of football fans has transformed the city into a major tourism hub for the World Cup. Compared to Qatar, Dubai offers a relatively relaxed atmosphere in terms of Western norms. Whether it's easy access to alcohol, sunbathing at the beach or just the lively nightlife. And apart from all these reasons, the fact that Doha is just an hour away from here by flight made Dubai an attractive destination for many fans coming down to watch the World Cup. The tournament has also ushered in the holiday season early for businesses across the board. The hospitality sector, which suffered due to the pandemic, has seen a huge surge in bookings. Luxury hotel, the Five Palm, has been running at more than 90% occupancy ever since the football event began. I think it's fair to give you a benchmark against 2019 because that was the last normal year for hospitality globally. So at least what we're seeing for us, our business is up about 58% which is a substantial number. And actually, it's probably up, in a sense, higher because most of our customers come from the United Kingdom and, and Europe, where the currencies have also faced challenges because we're a dollar economy. So it's been more expensive for people to come. So it's, it's really, really helped us get through a challenging year like 2022. 
The influx of visitors has brought relief to the local tourism sector at a time when the global economy is facing huge uncertainty. And even as the coming year looks challenging for businesses across the world, the industry here is hoping that the momentum provided by the World Cup will help them sail through tough times. That's BBC's Samir Hashmi in Dubai. We have Peter here in Salford joining us in the studio. So, Peter, no Dubai for us. We're still in the UK. But over the weekend, do you plan to watch the football? Yeah, uh, a bit. But this weekend is Netflix with Harry and Meghan for oh, me, I'm afraid. Come on. All right. But what do you have in store for us when it comes to aviation news? Um, there's a first transatlantic flight. If somebody has to take one to go to Qatar or Dubai in the near future, it may be net zero. Tell us more. Yes, Davina. So Virgin Atlantic Airlines is set to launch the first aircraft to fly across the Atlantic powered only by sustainable aviation fuel. Now, the Virgin Atlantic Boeing 787 test flight is scheduled for next year and is between uh, London Heathrow and the John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. Now, this is a huge flight, Boeing 787, and it will run purely on sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF as they call it. So these SAF fossil, they they are not fossil-based, right? They are mostly made from agricultural waste, which is crucial if you think about the fact that carbon uh, emission reduction is a big thing, and this is going to cut it for about 70%. So if the flight goes well next year, it will make it the first transatlantic flight to achieve net zero emissions. All right, Peter, thank you for joining us on that. But uh, very quickly, there's some news around Donald Trump as well. Well, wait for it, Davina. It's a bird? It's a plane? No, it's Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) At least that's what a few Americans are saying. Following the announcement by the website offering digital trading cards, showing Donald Trump in guises like being a superhero, an astronaut, a NASCAR driver. The website is saying that he sold out these items, 45,000 of them, each at $99, all sold out. Now, there's a lot of criticism around that because most of his uh, uh, Republican Party members are also not happy because he's triggered this whole thing saying there's a big uh, announcement this this week and a lot of people are expecting him to potentially name a running mate for his presidential campaign. But yeah, it turns out it's just about the cards. I'm not putting my money there, but thanks so much uh, for joining us, uh, Peter. Let's move on. We have been covering the European Union and how its allies have been building pressure on Russia to end the war in Ukraine with different sanctions. Just this month, the European Union banned import of seaborne crude oil from Russia. The G7 group of countries that include the UK and the US agreed on a new global price cap of $60 per barrel for Russian crude. So ships are barred from accessing Western maritime insurance unless the Russian crude oil is sold under this price cap. And one of the ways in which Russia is trying to overcome these curbs is by building its own fleet of ships. Some experts even call it a shadow fleet. But Anup Singh is the regional head of tanker research at ship broking firm Baymar. He says that he's been tracking the impact of curbs in Russia's crude oil transportation and export. And for now, it is quite less. The volume of exports out of the Baltic region are certainly coming off, yeah, somewhat. There's a volumetric decline in Russian exports, which is quite visible from from the from the tracking data. Now, how much of that is is, is the shadow fleet? What what we call shadow fleet? How much of it is Russian owned? Uh, which is possibly something something interesting to talk about. Before even before the war started, right? It had uh, about 
60 odd tankers, which it owned uh, Aframaxes, and it had about 35, 40 uh, you know, MR vessels. So it had about a fleet of 100 ships. Now it's probably using all of those. And uh, over the last eight months, it has acquired close to 150 uh, you know, crude tankers to carry. Uh, it's also it's probably using those as well. The entire mainstream fleet, barring the EU-owned vessels, are also likely to be servicing Russian trade. Yeah. Uh, it and that sizable tonnage does not need to operate in the shadow market. It could, if it if if you know, when I say shadow again, you know, shadow being outside the outside the uh, you know ambit of the U.S. dollar uh, based transactions. Yeah. So as of now, it does not necessarily need to trade in that in that domain of non-U.S. dollar transactions. Using its own fleet, is it giving any kind of cost advantage to Russia? It does. Uh, because you, uh, you know, Russia has sort of invested uh, a lot of money to, to buy these tankers. Now, when when Russia started to to hoover up the pool of of you know 15, 16, 17 year old vessels, their prices obviously went up. From here on, you know, it's probably going to be able to defray some of the some of the additional freight costs because it can you know it can uh, continue to ship its crude at, at reasonably uh, low levels of freight. Which are the countries which are ready to accept Russian crude oil on Russian ships in the near future that you see? Uh, Russian oil pretty much coming into into India. India is now the number one destination for Russian oil. Uh, and likewise, Russia is the largest supplier of crude oil in, into India. It used to be Iraq, but in November it was Russia. China is a destination. Uh, within Southeast Asia... I would think it's uh, there. There are some some countries like Indonesia, which have been, uh, which were considering uh, importing uh, Russian oil and Russian ships. Do you see then the sanctions that were put on the energy exports from Russia to hit the Russian economy being circumvented by Russia? The objective of the price cap. I'll talk about the price cap. Yeah. Uh, so now uh, it is it is very obvious that. Most of the parties involved in setting the price cap do not want the world to lose Russian oil. Even before the price cap, uh, the sanctions have, have had an effect in the sense that if international price of food is $90 a barrel or 85 these days, then the, the Russians are you know, only making $55, $60 a barrel for their crude. And that's, that's before the cost of freight. So net-net, uh, you know, Russia is still uh, not making as much money as it potentially could have. That's Anoop Singh from shipbroking firm Baymar. But uh, if you're celebrating Christmas, then one of the best parts is getting home for the holidays. But remote working and Christmas and a Christmas card, how do they all add up together? Here's Megan McCarty Carino from our partners at Marketplace. Before remote work became common, a trip to visit family during the winter holidays was a whole production, says Julie Swenson, a social media manager in Edina, Minnesota. When you go away for a week, you feel like you're going away for the next 10 years. Like it just, you've got to get everything done and get everybody up to speed and find a backup for every little thing. Leave the office and, you know, use your precious PTO for flying time. 
Her sister and her mom live in Arizona, so she'd always be flying at the busiest, most expensive, most stressful times, parachuting in for a short visit, then rushing back home to work. Now she's taking longer trips, spending time with her family outside the hectic holiday feasts. She can savor quiet coffee breaks with her mom or silly playtime with her three-year-old nephew. I could never have done that in the old days. In fact, I wouldn't have taken that trip in the old days because it was such a hot and heavy time at work, but I could just keep right up because of remote work, which is just a wonderful gift, really. Really. And yet, there are trade-offs. The Wi-Fi can be fickle, the three-year-old can be distracting, and mom isn't always understanding when Swenson needs to break away to meet a deadline. For me, things get too blended when we travel. All that work-life balance many people have found over the last couple years by working from home can be thrown into disarray once we're with our families, says Ashley Willens, a social psychologist at Harvard Business School. When we think about working from our parents' house, we're thinking about the food and the wine and the conversations. And then what we're forgetting is the sitting in the closet and trying to work on your fancy conference presentation in the middle of the night because you've been bothered by social events all day. Or blithely interrupted by family members who are used to having the run of the house. Robert Down knows this. He's someone I interviewed last year about nursing. Not everybody can go work the front lines. Not everybody has the knowledge set to go be a nurse. At the time, I was taking an extended working holiday at my parents. Hi, Dad. (laughs) My dad just walked in. I'm I'm doing an interview. Hi, are you a nurse? I I am a nurse, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, I I won't interrupt any longer. (laughs) It was a pleasure to meet you. It's just that I live here and there's stuff in this room I need. Yeah. (laughs) Fair point. It's tough for parents, too. You know, it's really hard to know when someone is doing something where they need silence. Kimberly Edelston is a management professor at Northeastern University. At one moment, they're in your living room. Another moment, they're in the office. Another moment, he's in his bedroom. Edelston is an expert on work-family issues, And still couldn't help but annoy her adult son when he was working at her house around Thanksgiving. I had him put, you know, just a little post-it on his door, like, you know, do not enter. Because, you know, he was home and I was being the mom, doing the laundry and walking in his room, dropping piles of laundry. And there he was on the phone call. She says setting a schedule for yourself and communicating it clearly to your family can help alleviate some of the confusion whether you do it with post-it notes or a conversation. She says even more important than protecting work from the distractions of family at this time of year is protecting family time from the distractions of work. Make sure, you know, you, you do give yourself a break, you shut down. It does actually make us more productive and effective. Though she says it is okay to excuse yourself for a work call when family fun starts to turn into an argument. That's Megan McCarty Carino of Marketplace. And we all have that story somewhere or the other uh, when we've been interrupted on remote working, haven't, don't we? But uh, have you ever wondered what it's like to strike a gavel? 
and say sold. In the final episode of the Business Daily series Money Jobs, my colleague Liana Byrne interviews people who work in some of the oldest and most well-known auction houses in the world to find out what the day in the life of an auctioneer is really like. Generically, there are a few factors that matter. Uh, one is rarity how unique and how rare the object is. Another one is provenance. Where does it come from? Does it come from a very established, very prestigious collection? Or sometimes from a celebrity, sometimes we sell uh, the belongings of celebrities that talk to the people and whether it is like a famous actor of the 60s, the whom whose we sell the car of, and people, identified with the movies they've seen in their years and they're willing to pay paying an extraordinary price to drive the car of that actor. Uh, so it could be provenance in the sense of where it comes from and who owned it. It could be rarity. And then you have s- some more specific criteria like importance. Is the painting, for example, important in the in the story of this artist and in, in the career of this artist and condition, obviously? Uh, what is the condition of the object? So those are the factors. And then once you say that, I would say anything goes. We sold a curtain uh, for more than a million dollars, which has been designed by Chagall and was actually the curtain uh, behind the magic flute at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Now we're more informed about the internal workings of an auction house. What is it like being an auctioneer? Let's talk to Jenny Locke. She's Head of Business Development and Operations at Poly Auction House, Hong Kong. It was actually by coincidence that uh, I became an auctioneer. To be honest, um, I started off as being uh, in the law industry. So I did my undergraduate as Law Anthropology in London School of Economics. I'm really curious to know what it's like standing up there and taking these bids. And Jenny says it's pretty full on, actually. It can be really exciting. I started auctioning uh, the wine auction. So actually for a wine auction, uh, the prices will be relatively low compared to perhaps like contemporary art department or Chinese ceramics department. So this is my first trial as being an auctioneer on stage. And I think, of course, like being an auctioneer is not an easy job because I don't think the majority public actually see how much effort would put into each cell. We need to manage the atmosphere. We need to be able to react to uh, sudden occurrence. For example, like when we, because normally when we go, before we go on stage, we will get the auctioneer book and we will have written uh, some of the telephone biddings or there will be like live biddings. But then obviously when it comes to a real auction, it might not happen. More on this in a Business Daily podcast. That was Liana Byrne uncovering this story. But thank you for joining us. This is World Business Report and namaste from Peter, Liana, Simon and me on this show. Thank you for being with us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.